I have a little project this morning that I'm trying to take care of. I'm trying to put a three-inch screw into this four-by-four block of wood. So I'm going to check a couple of things in my toolkit. I'll try. Oh wait, this isn't going to work. That's a Phillips screw, and this is a flat, standard screwdriver. Let me get a Phillips here. There we go. Try that. Even though I drilled a pilot hole, this is going to take forever with this Phillips screwdriver. Let me try one thing else. One more thing. Ah, this will work. Perfect. Perfect. Just the thing I needed. I'll come back to this illustration at the close of the message this morning, but please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. I want to review where we've been so far in this Sermon on the Mount. This wonderful sermon that our Lord Jesus Himself gave. On this Valentine's Day, we have the perfect text from the Sermon on the Mount about loving like God loves. And the primary verse of this whole section is the last verse, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We're going to take that as a standalone text at the end of the message this morning. But for now... I want us to dive into the real intent of this passage in contrast to what the Jewish leaders were teaching and promoting. Jesus wants us to understand the the real difference between a person living the God life and someone living what they think is the good life. So by way of review, I want us to think back through what we've covered so far. We looked at the Beatitudes We talked about the thrill of the God life. We saw Jesus teaching about salt and light. And that gave us the idea that we can make an impact. God has us here on this planet as His people to make an impact for Him. And then we looked at the value of the written Word of God and that it will never change. Heaven and earth may pass away, but His Word will not pass away. The core of the God life is the written Word of God. And then we've been talking about the differences in the God life. How God's people control their anger. How they make a commitment to their marriage. How they correctly use their words. And now today, we're going to be talking about choosing to love like God does. And the key here as we go through this passage this morning will be to give God space in our hearts and lives for Him to fill us with His love, with all of His character, but especially the subject of love this morning. So we're going to dive into today's text and we're going to look at three key questions, three important questions starting in verses 38 to 42. Let me read those. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. 
And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Our question is, how far does this thing go of loving like God does? How far does it go? Jesus states in, I think, very simple terms, a deterrent to taking matters into our own hands, a deterrent to becoming vigilantes. The Old Testament law was very specific against taking personal revenge. If you want a reference for that, look at Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In order to keep someone from misapplying that law to just my neighbor, verse 34 of that same chapter says this, and it's very important, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you once were aliens in the land of Egypt. That was a very necessary statement for Jesus to make. Because just as today, back then, we, we have, as sinful people, had this tendency to overreact, to over-retaliate when someone has threatened us or harmed us. Seems like more and more in our society today we have this victim mentality. Instead of what for the Christian is really supposed to be a victory reality. That's a huge difference, isn't it? To think of ourselves as victims or to see ourselves in Christ as victors. The Jewish leaders took uh, lots of approaches to this text. They looked for ways to get around what the text was really saying. They looked for ways to beat the system. They looked for ways to tell the average person the exact opposite of what the law was saying about not taking personal revenge. The Latins called this lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. And here are some examples from the Old Testament of how this was supposed to work. For example, if you injured a pregnant woman, here's what the law said. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he is to be surely fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound. Does that kind of cover it all? (laughs) Bruise for bruise. Notice the reference in that text to judges. The point of that Old Testament law was to keep individuals from over-retaliating. So everything was to go through judges, through the court system. But even in the court system, a fair judgment was to be meted out. 
Not something more, not something less, but something that fits the crime. When I was a kid, I had an example of uh, punishment on me that didn't fit the crime. I'm not here to cry about my dad. But uh, my dad told us boys that we were not to throw the football around in the backyard where the house windows and the garage windows were. But to be honest, we did it many times while he was at work. Except for one day when he strangely came home early from work. He'd never come home early. And there we were tossing the old football around. My dad said, boys, do you remember what I told you? And we thought and thought and thought and finally it came to us. He told us that if we were caught throwing the football around in the backyard, he would take it away for one year. So that day my dad took the football away. I don't know where he put it. But I do know that exactly one year to the day later, we got the football back. That always made me mad. (laughs) In fact, my statement for a long time as a young man was, I'm not mad at Dad, but that punishment was bad. (laughs) I wouldn't have done it that way. I was the perfect dad for my children. (laughs) Right. The Word of God makes it very clear that the punishment is to fit the crime. So one example, again, is injuring a pregnant woman. Another example is murdering or maiming someone or something, some animal. Leviticus 24, starting at verse 17, says, If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it will be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the man who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you, and it shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Notice the reference there in that text to the stranger. Again, the law had to apply both to Jew and Gentile just the same. The scribes and Pharisees and rabbis taught differently. Let me give you a direct quote from the Talmud. If you see that a Gentile has fallen into the sea, you shall by no means lift him out. Of course it is written, do not rise up against your neighbor, but this man is not your neighbor. That's what the Jewish leaders taught. If he's not a Jew, you don't help him. Even if he's drowning. There's another example of perjuring yourself in court. Deuteronomy 19, starting at verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin that he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and if he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. This is how you shall purge the evil thing from among you. You shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In this instance, remember, there's to be no pity shown to the person who's lied about his friend or his neighbor or his brother or the other Gentile in order to get back at them or bring harm or death to them. So this text was very important. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it was to be done in the courts. Jesus is going to expand that now and make it a personal note. And by the way, Jesus is not advocating here passive non-resistance. He's saying that a heart that's filled with hate and revenge has no room for the Holy Spirit. He's not pushing what people today call tort reform. He's pushing heart reform. Someone put it this way, and I think very appropriately. Returning evil for good is devilish. Returning good for good is quite human. But returning good for evil is divine. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Doing good even to those who would treat us in an evil way. The Jewish leaders put this in the context of the courts. But Jesus wants his followers, those who want to live the God life, to ask the question, what am I supposed to do on a personal level to that person who injures me, that person who harms me, that person who treats me badly? The world around us says, and you know this, do to others before they do it to you. Jesus says, be different in every case. Look again at the text. Turn the other cheek. Do you realize in the text that he's talking about being struck on the right cheek? If someone is facing me, how are they going to strike me on the right cheek? Only one way that I can think of, and that's with the back of their hand, right? Did you know that in Jewish law, first century, and I'm using American dollars now to illustrate this, if you were slapped by someone, punched by someone, or slapped with the open hand, that was a $200 fine. If they slapped you with the back of their hand, which was a greater insult in that society, that was a $400 fine. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He also says, give up your coat. If you owe money to someone and as a part of the agreement, uh, before they take you to court, they take your uh, garments, then give them your coat as well. If a Roman soldier comes along, and this was first century law, because the Jews were under domination by the Roman government, if a Roman soldier comes along and sees you standing there and he says, you're going to carry my baggage, you're going to carry my luggage, you are required by Roman law to carry that for one mile, up to one mile. Jesus said, go another mile. 
Can you imagine what a difference that would have made to that Roman soldier? What a testimony that would be? You've carried it one mile, but then you say to him, you know, I'd like to do this another mile for you. (laughs) What a difference. What a way to testify of God's goodness and grace. Jesus says, walk two miles instead of one. And also, give to those who ask for help, those who really need it. You see, the God life doesn't just say, I'm free to resist. The God life also says, I'm free to comply and go beyond what's expected, all for the sake of God's glory. You say, Bill, is this all just Old Testament stuff? No. Listen to Romans chapter 12. Starting at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I could give you some other examples of these situations, but let me zero in on the last one about helping someone who's in in need, helping the poor. Here's what the Old Testament said, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there's a poor man among you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in the land to which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. The issue, Jesus is saying, is not, does this person deserve it? The issue is, does he need it? Putting it another way, Jesus would say to us, don't think of your own rights. Think of your service to others, to your fellow man, to that person made in the image of God. Helping others is a privilege for the person seeking to live the God life. It's not an obligation, it's a privilege. And we do it in a personal way. We find out what does this individual really need? How can I help them best? But sometimes that isn't giving them, just just giving them things. Sometimes it's teaching them, training them how to do well with what they have. By the way, notice the text says, give to him who asks of you. But it doesn't say, give to him whatever he asks of you. There's a big difference there. A big difference. The bottom line of our sermon is highlighted in the second question in your notes today. How deep is our love? Verses 42 to 47. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Let me start this second point of my sermon by making it clear that Jesus did not approve 
of the cut and paste approach that the Jewish leaders were using in regard to Old Testament law. They applied their interpretation by means of taking things out and adding things back in. They had an unauthorized version with additions and subtractions. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going with that. I want to give you the right interpretation. Here's what the law actually said. We read it earlier. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, first century, left out the words, as yourself, didn't they? But they also added, hate your enemy. It was never mentioned in the Old Testament. It was not part of Old Testament law. That was their interpretation. So, they also defined what a neighbor is. And for the Jewish person of the first century, their neighbor was someone who was a Jew. Someone who was part of their same race and religion. But not anyone else. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Luke chapter 10. Why did Jesus give that story? Because someone asked him a question. And I think you remember the question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus, to answer that question, gave the illustration of the Good Samaritan. And the illustration makes the point that in the real world of God's rule versus man's interpretation, my neighbor is anyone in need that I can help. Yet remember, that Samaritan helped an injured Jewish man. There was nothing in it for him. But there was love on display through him. Those two men, that injured Jewish man and that Samaritan, were different on every level. Politically, socially, culturally, religiously. But the reason the one man is called a good Samaritan, a half-Jew, is because he helped someone out in need. And he did it out of sincere love. G.K. Chesterton, a British writer, says this, and I think it's so good. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and our enemies, probably because they are generally the same person. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? Sometimes our neighbors, the ones living right next door to us, are our worst enemies. Jesus teaches His followers a very different ethic than their religious leaders gave. He says, love your enemies. Pray for them. Be courteous to them in greetings. Bless them. The word that he uses here for love, love your enemies, is the word for sacrificial love that looks for the highest good to be done to others. That makes a determination, translation, a choice to seek the other person's best interest. It's the principle of love in God's kingdom. It's not natural in us. We have to be willing to admit that. It comes instead for the believer when God pours His love in us through the Holy Spirit. 
and enables us to love like He loves. Some people respond to this love your enemies this way. We're commanded to love them, but we don't have to like them. Wrong. That's a qualification to the text that's no different than the Jewish leaders' qualifications and interpretations of the first century. Now, understand, loving someone who doesn't share my values, who doesn't share my beliefs, is hard. In fact, it's impossible in ourselves. But we have the perfect example in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came to this earth, made this prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks, plural, to those who pluck out my beard. He turned the other cheek, didn't he? And when Jesus went to the cross, he went further living out the directives that he gave here in this sermon. John 19, verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Notice again, plural, garments. He gave up all of his garments. They put on him a purple robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They spit on him. They pulled out his hair of his beard. But Jesus, again, like He's teaching here, says in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's love. You might say to yourself, and many people would say at this point, well, that's Jesus. (laughs) He's the perfect, sinless Son of God. He can love like that. He can love perfectly. How am I supposed to be like Jesus? How can a human being love like that? Let me me give you an example of a human being who loved like that. His name is Stephen. He was the first martyr in the early church. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. At the very time he's being beaten to death with rocks, while being stoned to death, He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The very same sentiment of Jesus. So it is possible for humans, mere humans, to love like Jesus loves. But only when God does it through us. It's a love very unlike the world's approach. God loves everyone. He loves people equally. Verse 45 makes that clear, doesn't it? Verse 45 in our text is very plain. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's he's willing to bless anyone. And we can demonstrate real love with God the Holy Spirit living right inside us. Again, this love is... For our enemies. But it's a personal love, not a national thing. Let me explain. This text cannot be allowed to say to us or force us to say, well, ISIS 
They're our enemies. They can do anything they want. The text doesn't say that. It's not a national issue. We don't have to lay down our arms as a country and give in to Islamic terrorism. But we do have to love our enemies on a personal basis. This is me loving others the way God loves them. This is you choosing to love in a practical way without regard to being loved in return. In Luke chapter 6, verse 34, it says, If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. Expecting nothing in return. So what does this love look like? Specifically, what does this love look like? On the back of your notes, you'll see some description from what we often call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And I would like to demonstrate what this love should look like by inserting my name in those verses 4 through 8. And I would like to invite you to do the same in your mind. Not necessarily out loud, but in your mind. So it should read like this. Bill is patient. Bill is kind and is not jealous. Bill does not brag and is not arrogant. Bill does not act unbecomingly. Bill does not seek his own. He is not provoked. He does not take into account a wrong suffered. Bill does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bill bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Bill's love never fails. I wish I could say that were true of me all the time. You put your name in there. How does that describe you? That's the kind of love Jesus preached. That's the kind of love Jesus modeled while He was on earth. But again, the questions surface. How can I be like that? How can I love like that? God's love is perfect. Mine isn't. I have more of a tendency to hate than I do to love. How can that happen? How is the love life of the God life even possible since I'm not perfect like Jesus is? Well, that brings us to our third and final question this morning. How perfect can we be? Verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's first talk about what this verse does not mean. Being a follower of Jesus Christ and part of His kingdom does not come about by virtue of physical or moral perfection. I can't earn my way into the kingdom of God. I can't live perfectly in a moral sense while I'm in this body because I'm a sinner by nature. It can only come... Being part of the family of God, part of the kingdom of God, can only come by the merit of the righteousness of Christ. Earlier in this sermon, in verse 20, Jesus said, you remember, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I hope we learned 
that there's no way in the world we're going to outdo the Pharisees task for task, law for law. They worked hard at it. But our only hope, as theirs was, is to be given by the very grace of God the righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ as a gift by faith. Jesus, God's perfect, sinless Son, came to this world to save sinners like you and me. The Bible speaks very plainly about three kinds of people. Not just saved and unsaved, but really three kinds of people. The natural man, unsaved, apart from God. The carnal Christian, who thinks living the good life is the way to go, and doesn't give much thought to the God life. And then the spiritual person, who longs to live the God life in every area of life, all to the glory of God. I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of God's Word that only the spiritual person can love like this. Man, woman, child. And there are examples of people who do love like this. Not just Stephen in the Bible. He was a great man. But other people too. I was reading the other day about uh, uh, an account that Corey Ten Boom gave in her book, Reflections of God's Glory. And I'm quoting now. In Africa, a man came to one of our meetings with bandaged hands. I asked him how he had been injured. He said, my neighbor's straw roof was on fire. I helped him put it out and that's how my hands were burned. Corey says, later I heard the whole story. The neighbor hated him and set his roof on fire while his wife and children were asleep in the hut. They were in great danger. Fortunately, he was able to put out the fire on his house in time. But sparks flew over to the roof of the man who had set his house on fire, and his house started to burn. There was no hate in the heart of this Christian. There was only love for his enemy. And he did everything he could to put out the fire in his neighbor's house. And that's how his hands got burned. That's real love. That's loving your enemies. That's loving like Christ loves. I can't do that on my own. You can't do that on your own. But by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can. So, so what does this command mean? Therefore, be perfect. Well, it hinges on the translation of the word perfect. It's a common Greek word, this particular word. The Greek word is teleos. You don't need to remember that. But its translation depends on the context. Sometimes it can mean full-grown or mature. Sometimes it means complete or fully instructed, like a senior in high school versus a preschooler. Sometimes it means to reach for the goal. Other times it means to be in good working order. But often, as the case is here, it means achieving the purpose for which it was planned or created. Achieving the purpose for which it was planned or created. So then the question is, why did God make me? Why am I here? What's His plan or purpose for my very existence? And the answer goes all the way back to Genesis and the account of creation. Genesis 1.26, God speaking, says, Let us make man in our image. 
and after our likeness. God made us to be like Him morally, perfect and sinless, to live in His presence like Adam and Eve did before they fell in sin. Back when they enjoyed fellowship with God in the garden daily, sin marred that fellowship. It destroyed that moral perfection. And since then, every person born into this world, except Jesus who was virgin born, has been born with a sin nature, born in need of a Savior. Now God desires for His children to live again with Him in heaven, in a place of beautiful perfection. But I can't get there on my own, by my own righteousness. When I turn my heart over to God by faith, when I trust Jesus work on Calvary's cross for me, Jesus' perfection then is placed on me. And by virtue of His virtue, I'm made right with God and God considers me perfect. Exactly the way it was planned. So back to our illustration. To put that screw in that block of wood this was the perfect tool it achieved the purpose for which the DeWalt manufacturers planned it it achieved the purpose for which I used it to put that screw all the way into that block what this means for us is that Jesus commands me to be a mature Christian when it comes to love To love others because God loves through me. To love because that's one of the reasons why God made me and saved me. And He put His love in me. Romans 5 verse 5 says, The love of God is poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And it's just like His love. He loved us when we were enemies of His. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, you can look it up for yourself. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. So the life of God in us enables us to be complete, fulfilled, filled with love. We're able to love just like God purposed for us. Just like He designed us to love. And we become the perfect tool in God's hands to love people around us who need Him. To show them in practical ways patience, kindness, humility, giving, sharing, caring. But loving starts with thinking about His love. 1 John Chapter 4, verse 15, we love Him because He first loved us. 4.19, I'm sorry. God wants to transform you and me into being His perfect power tool to love others. This morning we're going to close our service by singing a beautiful song, Think About His Love. That's really what it starts with. Thinking about His love.
and the fact that He wants to love through us. Would you stand and sing it with me? We love Him because He first loved us. Sing with me. Think about His love. Think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Great is the measure of our Father's love. Let's sing it once more. Think about His love. Think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the man of our Father's love. Great is the measure of our Father's love. Great is the measure of our Father's love. I want to thank you so much for coming this morning. Hope you have a wonderful week, and uh, you can ask God to help you be that perfect tool for loving others with His kind of love. God bless you.